Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Weil Assad, who's Associate Professor of Neuroscience and Neurosurgery at Brown University. He is also the Director of Functional Neurosurgery and the Epilepsy Program. Welcome, Weil. I want to start with one of your papers, uh, Deep Brain Stimulation Targeting the Phonics of Mid-Alzheimer's Dementia. Uh, You say in this paper, given recent challenges in developing new treatments, for Alzheimer's dementia, AD, it is vital to explore alternate treatment targets such as neuromodulation for circuit dysfunction. Um, before we get to the detail, while, uh, what exactly is deep brain stimulation? Sure, yeah. So, you know, deep brain stimulation is a well-established therapy for movement disorders in particular, such as Parkinson's disease, where it's most often used, but also for things like essential tremor, um, you know, we, we also use it occasionally for um, intractable psychiatric diseases such as OCD, although we also do some other procedures for that. Um, and so it's basically just a method for putting electrodes in the brain to deliver electrical stimulation that can modulate the activity of brain circuits. And so it's really to be contrasted with chemical neuromodulation, which is what you do whenever you take a pill that affects brain function. And the advantages, you know, of you know, electrical neuromodulation are that you can target it directly to a circuit and modify that circuit, irrespective of sort of the natural boundaries of chemical mediators. You know, if you take a drug, you know, the circuits, then the neurons that that drug works on, um, you know, really sort of just depend on where evolution put them. Whereas, you know, if we have a knowledge of the circuits we're trying to modulate, we can anatomically target our therapy. The disadvantage, of course, is that you know, for something like deep brain stimulation, you have to actually do neurosurgery. And even though by our standards in neurosurgery, it's it's relatively minimally invasive and, you know, yeah. um, you know, relatively safe, obviously there, there are always risks associated with it. So, you know, but the advantage is that with neuromodulation, you can often do things that you can't do with medicines. So, so, that's, so that's in this deal. case, while the electrodes are actually going in, into the brain, so you actually have surgically, you're surgically inserting the electrodes? 
That's right. So we, you know, typically a pair of electrodes, one on each side of the brain into the relevant circuit and everything's implanted under the skin. So nothing is, you know, visible to an outside observer. Um, and we tunnel the electrodes to a battery that's typically, you know, we call it a battery, but it's really kind of a little more fancy than that. It's a pulse generator that um, is implanted underneath the skin um, in the chest, kind of like a pacemaker would be. And the wires run under the skin to the electrodes, you know, in the head. Um, and, you know, this procedure can be done um, you know, awake, which is the sort of the standard way to do it. It can also be done using intraoperative image guidance using a CT or an MRI. Um, and, you know, but it's remarkable when it's done awake because, you know, the brain doesn't feel pain directly. And if you numb up the skin, you can go and put it in there and you find the circuit, you test the stimulation to make sure that it's working the way you like. And patients, you know, are, are very, very cooperative and, and eager to have this procedure done in many cases. And it's great to see its effect immediately in the operating room to know right. it's going to work before you close Yeah, and Alzheimer's, um, after many, many disappointments, we haven't been really able to do anything from a chemical intervention perspective uh, or do very little, I should say. Um, and, and so so this is going in that direction, right, to, to see if we can actually uh, approach it differently. Yeah, so we were part of a multi-center trial. We were one of the sites um, doing, you know, uh, you know, testing deep brain stimulation of the memory circuits for Alzheimer's disease. And what we, you know, were hoping to do was to modulate that circuit so that just like in Parkinson's disease, you know, when you do deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease, you're not really changing the underlying course of the disease um, as much as you are just kind of... Uh, uh, improving the symptoms, you know, and so the person can function better, even though unfortunately the disease, the disease keeps progressing. We were hoping that at least that might be the case in Alzheimer's, where even if we couldn't change the underlying course, and it's not certain that we would or wouldn't be able to, but even if we couldn't, that at least we might improve memory function. And this was based on, um, this whole trial was based on the work of, of a well-known neurosurgeon yeah. in Toronto named Andres Lozano, who found that in a small group of patients, when he was, you know, trying to stimulate a nearby area, that stimulating this specific memory structure called the fornix, which leads to the hippocampus, which is kind of a core structure in the episodic memory system, that when he asked, you know, when he inadvertently stimulated this this circuit, patients had a sudden recall, you know, with with great clarity of, of of distant events in their lives that you know they may not have thought about for a long time, which gave him the idea that maybe if we modulate this circuit. Um, you know, we might be able to boost memory, you know, again, in analogy to Parkinson's disease, you know, where we, where we boost the right circuit. to. Yeah. You know, so, so you talk about mild Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, do, uh, does that imply that you, you have to, if you were to be successful here, it really has to be early? Well, we, we feel that it's probably most advantageous to, try and intervene early um, just because there might be the, the best chance of changing the course of that person's disease, at least right. in terms of symptomatic control. Um, but, you know, it's not clear that that's necessarily the best way to do it, but um, it probably makes the most sense for where to start with yeah. this. You know, so so what did you find? So this study, um, if I read this correctly, 42 uh, patients in the study? That's right. So, you know, we enrolled, I believe, seven of them here, and it was a yeah. uh, study across eight different sites. And, you know, it, it basically what the, you know, it was a small study, and it was designed mostly as a feasibility study to assess the, the feasibility and safety of, of this approach, because nobody had ever really, um, you know, targeted the circuit before with deep brain stimulation. So we had to make sure that it was just a reasonable thing to try. 
And what we found was that it's indeed just about as safe as any kind of you know DBS procedure we would do. It didn't seem to pose any special risks from that perspective. Um, and then it did have some positive results in terms of you know boosting the metabolism of key parts of the brain that might be related to Alzheimer's. Um, but you know it wasn't clear that we were seeing a therapeutic benefit yet. So there's actually a new advanced trial. Um, you know the, the advanced was the name of the trial, and so there's a new advanced trial just getting started you know, over the last few months where we're enrolling along with a bunch of other centers, um, a larger number of patients testing stimulation to see if there's you know, more of a signal of benefit and also trying some different stimulation. And so the protocols. first trial, um, you established safety, but, but efficacy was unclear. A larger trial is about to start. Um, how, how long is the stimulation? Is it, is it multiple procedures or how, what is sort of the modality? So, well, the stimulation itself is ongoing um, and something we call open loop, meaning it's not really responding to the brain to stimulate. It's simply stimulating as a pacemaker would, sort of in a continuous, you know, in a continuous manner. We do have, you know, one uh, type of closed loop stimulation that we use for epilepsy, which is very exciting, where you actually have a device that records brain activity and stimulates in response to that. And in animals, you know, there are a lot of animal studies that show that if you do that sort of closed loop stimulation, you can certainly boost memory, you know, by stimulating the circuit in that fashion. But the technology for humans is is really quite limited still. And so the most proven technology, the best technology we have right now for stimulating circuits is sort of standard open loop deep brain stimulation, which is and, what we're trying. Um, so so you, you, um, you mentioned uh, certain circuits, uh, memory coming back. So, so do you have a specific location that that you're targeting or it's more general? No, so for this, we're targeting a structure called the fornix, which is related to the medial temporal lobe. Um, it's the output for, you know, the hippocampus, um, which is a critical structure in the formation of memories. And it is part of a circuit called PAPES circuit, which, you know, goes through some, you know, uh, frontal cortical areas. And so it's thought that this circuit is really responsible for yeah. laying down new memories. And so this is just one way of stimulating that circuit. You know, it's also possible to stimulate the circuit by putting electrodes directly into the hippocampus. And this is just one of many possible Yeah, so if, if you're successful here, while you know, uh, will that be, um, you know, uh, epilepsy and Alzheimer's are obviously very different. Um, in, in Alzheimer's, uh, do you think you will be able to sort of reestablish um, the, the memory and the, and, the, and the normal functioning of the brain? You know, it's hard to it's hard to know. You know, I think that, you know, ideally, I think that our goal would, would be simply to boost memory a little bit and so that patients can function, um, you know, a little bit uh, better than they do and yeah. that they would otherwise without it. Um, that's, you know, sort of a, a you know, minimal goal, um, you know, but a more optimal goal would obviously be to, to slow down the disease or change the course of the disease. Um, so, so it's not clear what's, what's going to happen. I think first we just want to see some signal of benefit, whether that represents, you know, a symptomatic benefit or a truly a yeah. disease modifying benefit, you know, that we'll have to figure yeah, that I out. I mean, later. I don't know a lot about uh, Alzheimer's, but, um, I guess at some stage, the patients, uh, e the, even the short term memory is greatly affected, right? So, so is that the case that they can really function? They just, uh you know, just forgetting even very short-term memory aspects? 
Well, as the disease, disease progresses, you know, so it's not just the hippocampus that's involved, it's the temporal lobe, it's the frontal lobes, you know, the parietal lobe. And so, you know, as the disease progresses, more functions, including things like working memory, begin to become involved as well. Um, so, you know, yeah, I think that it's it's really an open, open-ended question, which is why we study it, which is why, the, you know, there's a formal trial to investigate the possibility that yeah. we might provide. And so that. you said this trial is uh, just, just starting. Um, so how long do you think it will be? So the, um, we're hoping to enroll patients over the course of the next year, and then each patient will be followed for a minimum of one year. And, you know, um, we'll see how we'll see and how it goes. You, you do have sort of a control group here that, that you know, who, who will go through essentially uh, deep brain stimulation, even though they don't have any disease state. Well, so, so actually, you know, deep brain stimulation offers a good opportunity to um, perform a sort of control called, you know, a delayed yeah. start trial. And so what happens is that you um, have two groups of patients, one of whom, uh, both of whom are, are implanted immediately, and one of whom is turned on, the other one gets turned on at a later time. And so what you can do is, you know, number one, you're offering every patient the possible benefit of turning it on. But, num but uh, from a scientific perspective, what you're doing is you have one group that may continue to progress despite the implantation because they're not turned on, and then another group that hopefully does better because it's turned on. Um, and patients are randomized nice. to one of those two groups. And that's, and that's really the only way to, to be able to have a, a valid comparison because it might be that, you know, in, so for example, in Parkinson's disease, there's something called a micro, micro lesion effect where just putting the electrodes in can mimic stimulation to some extent and cause change in their symptoms. And, you know, while we don't expect that same sort of thing necessarily to happen here, it, you know, there's still this issue of, well, is the surgery itself doing something or is it the stimulation that's doing something? Do you, do you see any sort of preventative uh, type uh, therapy in the future? Uh, for, for instance, you know, if a, if a person is at a high risk of developing Alzheimer's, but, um, you know, doesn't show any symptoms today, uh, do uh, somebody like that benefit from uh, early deep, deep brain stimulation like this? Well, I think practically speaking, you know, we have a good example in Parkinson's yeah. disease, actually, because we have, you know, good evidence that the earlier you get deep brain stimulation in Parkinson's disease, the better that you, the better you do. And yet it's very difficult to convince patients who are in the earlier stages of their disease to have brain surgery right. for, for understandable reasons. And so most patients wait until their disease is to the point where they're really not doing well on medical therapy. And then they get the DBS, the deep brain stimulation. And, but we know from studies, like I said, that that's actually suboptimal, that they would have done better for longer if we had implanted them earlier. And so I think practically speaking, it's unlikely patients are gonna go for an invasive procedure like this early on. But I think that you know it's something to consider to, when we get to the point where you can maybe predict these diseases earlier before you know, someone is symptomatic. If there's a known treatment that's you know, disease modifying or at least you know, um, symptomatic, symptomatically, symptomatically beneficial, then I think that um, you know, depending on the invasiveness in the patient, you know, there might be some consideration of going forward. Yeah. With procedure like I that. mean, I don't know a lot about this, uh, while, but there's been a lot of talk about embedding the chip, <laughs> chip in the, the monkey oh, yeah. playing video games and so on. So, so are we going yep. um, in a direction where, you know, this type of, um, this type of procedure might become, you know, either the risk in the procedure is pretty much removed completely that patients would be more willing? 
Yeah, I think that's probably true. You know, I think that, you know, it's it's going to come down to what the perceived benefit of the procedure is. I mean, if if there's an invasive procedure, and then you know, now we're talking not necessarily about, you know, disease prevention or disease alleviation, but, you know, even, you know, potentially cognitive enhancement and things like that. You know, if there's a perceived benefit that's very, very significant, and, you know, the procedure itself is known to be less invasive, or at least, you know, um, less risky, you know, um, you know, I know that the, the Neuralink stuff that, you know, Elon Musk is involved in um, is, you know, one of the advantages is they're using very, very fine electrodes that are much smaller than, you know, what are typically used in these sorts of applications for, for humans. And if, you know, and they're using robots to help guide the implantation. And so if all these things are, you know, truly beneficial in the sense that risk is significantly reduced and the benefits are increased, then I think that there will probably be growing acceptance of, of this sort of thing. You know, I think that there's kind of yeah. a bias against, you know, um, surgical procedures compared to chemicals, you know, you know, drugs, because, you know, people feel like, you know, somehow they're being, you know, violated to have, you know, and, and it, you know, it's, it is, you know, kind of a potentially a, a gruesome looking thing or a kind of a scary looking thing or, you know, something, that, you know, that, that can turn people off. But at the same time, in terms of what you're actually doing to the brain, you can, in a certain sense, be a lot more specific than you can be with drugs, again, because you can target the, you know, the, the treatment, the device to very specific circuits. Um, and in animals, again, you know, the, the technology for modulating neural circuits in animals is quite a bit ahead of yeah. what it is in humans, you know, but that involves, you know, potentially inserting genes with, you know, adenoviruses that can make neurons responsive to light. And you can very, very precisely control which neurons are active or inactive. And so I think that it's, you know, almost inevitable that in humans at some point we'll have that same technology. And you know the the potential benefits are are really tremendous. Yeah. So so since 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 it's a sort of an electromagnetic chemical system, um, is there a possibility we can have uh, non-invasive techniques? Like is magnetic um, stimulation a possibility? So yeah, there is tr transcranial magnetic stimulation currently, you know, and that's being used for things such as, you know, uh, depression, you know, the, the psychiatrists use that quite a bit for yeah. intractable depression. Um, you know, it's being studied for a lot of for a lot of uses. Um, there is a new technology called focused ultrasound, which can be used to, um, you know, you can modulate the brain in a couple ways, you can, you know, insert electricity into a circuit and cause the circuit to be modified in its function that way, or you can um, you know, create a lesion. A lesion is basically like um, a disconnection, right? And so um, there's a new technology called focused ultrasound where you can actually create a disconnection, which can be beneficial. It's kind of like a double negative patch for, you know, a, a pathologically hyperactive circuit or something like that. So you can create a disconnection by focusing ultrasound through the, you know, through the intact skin and skull. Um, and so, And with lower frequency ultrasound, you can actually potentially not just you know, um, produce the disconnection, but actually modulate, drive the circuits in different ways. And so, you know, the, the problem with some of these technologies is that, you know, for any treatment that needs to be ongoing, um, you know, for instance, the focused ultrasound device, you know, is a big device, you know, several million dollars that sits inside of a, an MRI scanner. And, you know, it's not something you can walk around with. But the, the principle of it, you know, may be something that over time is, you know, can be shrunk and, you know, sort of applied to a hat that you wear. Right, you know, right. You know. Yeah, I mean, those engineering problems will be ultimately solved if, if it is efficacious, <laughs> I guess. So, so, so you, you mentioned Parkinson's disease. Uh, you have another paper, Rapid Motor Fluctuations Reveal Short Timescale Neurophysiological Biomarkers of Parkinson's Disease. 
you say identifying neural activity biomarkers of brain disease is essential to provide objective estimates of disease burden, obtain reliable feedback regarding therapeutic efficacy and potentially to serve as a source of control for closed loop neuromodulation. So um, uh, if I understand this correctly, there, there are some sort of diagnostic capabilities here. Uh, you want yeah, and I think that's actually something that's underappreciated about, you know, um, invasive, you know, neuromodulation yeah. devices is that, you know, one of the great limitations in treating neurologic disease is having an accurate estimate of how bad the disease is, you know, especially, you know, certain diseases that fluctuate over time. And, you know, epilepsy is a great example, right? You know, I think that, you know, if somebody has epilepsy, for instance, and they come to their neurologist and say, you know, I think I've had, you know, 13 seizures in the last month and, you know, but I'm not totally sure, you know, some types of seizures are very difficult for people, even, you know, the patient or their family to be really aware that that event is even a seizure. And so, you know, and then the neurologist, you know, listens to the patient and tries to make their best guess as to how bad things are, if things are better or worse than they were the prior month before the medication adjustment, let's say. And so then the neurologist has to, you know, use this imperfect information because, you know, the patient's own account is, is limited by the complexity of the disease and the, you know, and the, and the recounting of it. And so the neurologist makes a best guess and hopes that the new change in medication actually makes their life better. This is also true in diseases like Parkinson's disease, which fluctuates quite a bit. And so having some direct biomarker of what's going on with the disease can actually really help guide therapy, regardless of whether or not the device is actually stimulating, just its ability to record neural activity. And so in epilepsy, we have this device called, um, the trade name is Neuropace, the generic name is Responsive Neurostimulation. And it's designed, it's kind of like a brain defibrillator. It's designed to detect a seizure and upon detection, deliver stimulation to try and break up that activity so the seizure doesn't progress. And what we've learned from that experience is that simply having access to recordings of seizures and simply having a record, an objective record of seizure occurrence is actually very, very useful on its own, regardless of whether or not the stimulation improves their seizures, which which it does, fortunately. But but even before that, just the record, the objective record of their yeah. disease is very, very useful. And so our paper is sort of looking at, you know, whether we can understand what patterns of neural activity in Parkinson's disease are related to fluctuations in that in that in, in that disease right. state. And so so if, uh, if I understand this correctly, uh, well, so you're using some sort of machine learning techniques here, right? So you're getting a lot of data, and um, uh, what you're looking at here is using a machine learning technique would identify perhaps the, the the state of the disease and the progression. Yeah. So it, it turns out that in Parkinson's disease, it's a very interesting disease, right? It's um, it's not so much a, a disease of motor function at its core as, as much as it is a disease of plasticity in a funny way. And so it turns out that patients with Parkinson's disease are able to, you know, at different times, at different moments, make movements that are more or less effective, you know, more or less normal, you know. And um, so what we did was we basically had patients um, perform a task where they moved their, um, you know, they moved a little uh, stylus, you know, a, a little controller to try and track a target moving on a screen. And as they did this, we, we used machine learning to estimate how good their, mo their movements were. And then we looked at neural activity recorded from their brain while they were doing this task. And we used another layer of machine learning to try and understand which patterns of neural activity corresponded to those moments when they were doing relatively better or relatively worse. 
And so in that way, we were able to identify different patterns of oscillations that corresponded to better or worse motor performance. And what was interesting was that we found that these patterns really varied quite a bit from person to person and location to location inside the inside this small part of the brain that we were recording. And so it, you know, it may be that ultimately to have the best therapeutic efficacy of device, you know, of, of therapies like deep brain stimulation, um, it would be good to modulate them to the person's level of disease at that moment. But in addition, that the way in which it's modulated might depend on their particular pattern of brain oscillations that are related to the disease. That is that's fascinating. So 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 what is what do you, what do you think the primary reason is that it's it has such high variation both in location as well as intensity? Is it is it just um, the brain, just the disease progression level or uh, some other factor? Yeah, I think I think it's probably a couple of things. I mean, I do think that you know at a microscopic level, you know, brain circuits are different in different people, and you know, you wouldn't expect things to be exactly the same from person to person. But I think that a lot of the variation might be explained by the disease subtype. You know, so Parkinson's disease actually has several subtypes within it. You know, there's a certain a, a certain form called a tremor dominant form. There are non tremor dominant forms. Um, that, you know, include other symptoms such as being slow or stiff or unsteady in your gait and posture. And so depending on the subtype, that might be related to the pattern of activity we're seeing. And each patient, you know, expresses a different degree of each subtype. You know, it's not that they're mutually exclusive, but, um, you know, and so the degree to which different patients have these different features of Parkinson's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a syndrome, you know, um, you know, even though it seems to have the same pathological underpinning, which is dopamine, the loss of dopamine neurons, the manifestation of that seems to be quite varied across individuals. And so we think, and, and we did show in that paper that it seems that there, that some of the vari variability at least can be explained by the subtype. Do you see any evidence that when the brain realizes there is an issue, it, uh, it, it you know, it tries to co-opt some other circuit for, <laughs> for counteracting in any way? Yeah, I think that yeah, that that form of compensation is is well known, yeah. you know, and it's it's you know a question as to whether or not, you know, that some of that is under conscious control, you know, that you just find a new strategy trying to try and achieve the same thing, you know, that's in a way that's using a bypassing, you know, bypassing the pathological circuit for a totally different yeah. circuit, but at a smaller at a smaller level, I mean, I think that you know a good another good you know a good example in this again is with epilepsy, where you know patients may have temporal lobe epilepsy and memory on one side. Is severely affected because the you know the temporal lobe is where our memories you know are in part formed, and the epilepsy hurts those the function of those circuits, and you find that their memory functions are shifted so that the other side may actually take on more of that role. Yeah, so um, because there is a lot of variation, I don't know if it's possible, but does the data show uh, diagnostically, um, where the patient might be from, from a disease progression perspective, or even the subtype of Parkinson's that the patient might be suffering from? Yeah, absolutely. There are definitely some, some good reports that, that indicate that the neurophysiological activity might be, um, related to the level of disease, you know, how far along they are, um, how severe their disease is. Um, there's a, a good paper looking at the subtypes and how different certain, you know, different oscillations might be uh, related to um, oscillations in different parts of the, of the basal ganglia, which is a structure that's involved in, which is a structure in the brain that's involved in Parkinson's disease. So there's definitely evidence in that, you know, for those things. And we you know we have our own work, you know, related to that as well that we're currently, you know, preparing. Um, and so, 
you know, I think that there's a lot of evidence that we should be able to learn a lot about the disease by looking at neural activity. And uh, so deep brain stimulation is, uh, is used for this, for Parkinson's too, right? And, uh, and how yeah. effective has it been? Uh, has the effect been temporary or what, 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 what's the status quo on that? So there, there's great evidence, you know, very high quality evidence in, in you know, well-designed controlled studies that patients who, you know, reach a certain point in their Parkinson's disease where the medications are not optimally treating their, their symptoms, yeah. that when they get DBS, they do better, um, you know, in terms of just overall quality of life and function, you know, function in life um, than patients who didn't get DBS. And so there's there's very good evidence that it's a good therapy. You know, it's it's approved by all insurance. You know, because it's it's well established. Um, so it's it's not. You know, it really shouldn't be controversial. But that being said, you know, there are still you know neurologists out there and other you know doctors, primary care doctors, who have you know a funny um, sort of attitude towards it. Again, because it's invasive brain brain surgery. And a few years ago, and I, I think this person has come around, but. A few years ago, a neurologist came up to me once and said, I think, you know, deep brain stimulation is barbaric, you know, and so, you know, and, and you know, my, I didn't say anything back at that moment, but my thought was, well, I think suboptimally treating patients who could be doing a lot better is barbaric, right? So, um, you know, I, but I do think that there's some of that attitude remaining, but, you know, just like all revolutions in science, yeah. science, you know, sort of progresses when, you know, people who hold an older attitude sort of leave the field, right? And new people who are more open to new ideas kind of, you know, enter the field. And I think that's happening. Yeah. I remember seeing something where maybe I misunderstood it. Uh, the DBS in the case of PD effect was very tactical that once, once you remove the patient seemed to go back to where they started. So yeah, for the most part, we do believe that it's, it's kind of an ongoing therapy that when you discontinue it. So if you turn the DBS system off, yeah their symptoms will return. There is a little bit of evidence that if you compare patients who, you know, let's say have are at a certain stage of their disease and, and you look at their tremor, you know, resting tremor is, is one of the cardinal symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And if you look at patients who've had DBS for a long time, many, many years, and you turn off their DBS and then examine them a week later and say, well, how bad is your tremor? And presumably by that point, you know, the DBS is, you know, fully worn off, you know, usually it wears off in the course of minutes or maybe an hour. And so, you look at their tremor a, you know, a week later, and you compare that to patients who are at the same stage of disease, who never got DBS, you know, who were, who were at the same stage initially, you know, before, when the other group got DBS. And it turns out that, you know, their tremor is, you know, apparently somewhat improved. I mean, it's just one report, you know, but that would be potentially evidence of a disease modifying benefit, that, that, that the progression of tremor was actually slowed down. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's some hope that, that might be true to some extent, but we don't have a lot of evidence to suggest that DBS is doing something more than just temporarily treating symptoms as it's active. Do we currently have any chemical um, treatments for PD? Oh, yeah. So the, the, the primary, you know, the first line treatment is, is dopamine replacement therapy. So, you know, the, the primary pathologic deficit or, you know, pathologic problem in Parkinson's disease is a loss of dopamine neurons in, in the midbrain. And, you know, there's this common perception that, you know, dopamine is, you know, kind of like a rewarding neurochemical or, you know, a, you know, a, you know, there's a movie called Dopamine, which links it to love, you know, and, and the feelings of love, um, you know, and I think that that's a, it's a bit of mis misunderstanding because dopamine is actually involved more in reinforcement and in reinforcing behaviors. Mm -hmm. And without dopamine, what seems to happen is the system that produces movement is sort of uncalibrated and, uh, 
sort of reverts to you know slower, less effort, you know, less vigorous movements. Yeah. And so if you just replace dopamine, you can regain some of that function. And that works for a while. You know, that that can work for, you know, a few years, let's say. And then if the disease progresses to the point where dopamine isn't providing the benefits it used to, that that's a good spot where DBS can help. But like I said, there's evidence that, you know, doing DBS even sooner is actually even better. Yeah, I, I wondered, have there been any any trials that looked at sort of a combination therapy, um, both DBS along with other other things? Yeah, so DBS in combination with dopamine therapy is pretty standard. Um, and the trials that looked at early DBS, you know, that the DBS was in combination with dopamine therapy. So um, I think that in those in those cases, it's really, um, you know, use every tool you have in the toolbox to really try and improve somebody's life. Right, right. Yeah, so so I want to finish up with uh, one of your book chapters, uh, LITT for intractable psychiatric disease. What's LITT? Oh, so so LIT is stands for uh, laser interstitial thermal therapy, oh. and it's it's a relatively new technology. It's very neat, and what it involves is involves um, creating a disconnection, a lesion, like we talked about, but in this case, using a, a laser. And so you insert a laser to a certain target in the brain that you know, corresponds to a hyperactive circuit in a certain pathology. And using an MRI scanner, so this all happens in an MRI scanner, you can actually look at the the temperature that's coming out of the, the, you know, that's that's in the brain that's a result of the laser. And you heat it up until that temperature is sufficient that you've caused the disconnection you want to create. Mm. And you can watch that in near real time, you know, on an MRI scanner. So it's an MRI guided procedure. And it's very, very precise. Yeah. And it's one of the therapies that, you know, we can use for, for instance, for, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, you know, the other therapy would be deep brain stimulation. And of course, these are not just your run of the mill cases of obsessive compulsive disorder. These are, you know, you know, very, very severe, you know, medically intractable cases where the person is is debilitated, you know, unable to, you know, perform routine daily activities in, in much of any sense. Yeah. And, um, you know, what we're able to do is modify the circuit that's related to an area of the brain called the orbital frontal cortex mm. and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And those circuits seem to be hyperactive in patients with OCD. Yeah. And so these patients who failed every other therapy, in some cases they've even failed, you know, electroconvulsive, you know, therapy, you know, electroshock therapy. Right. And so, you know, once they've failed all those other things, I mean, unlike in Parkinson's disease where we think of DBS as, you know, potentially a relatively earlier line therapy, in psychiatric disease, it's it's a later line therapy, and so you know it's patients who are very very severe, and typically you know they fly from all over the country to one of a few referral centers of which we happen to be one, hmm. um, to have this procedure done, and so um, in general you know the laser procedure is just one more way to modify that circuit, the activity of that circuit, but it's it's a new technique and it's very very precise. We used to do it with gamma knife, yeah. which is a, a technique that involves giving you know focused radiation. Yeah. Um, you know, this involves inserting a laser catheter into the brain rather than doing everything from outside the brain, but it, it allows us much more precise control of the lesion itself, which we think is, you know, safer and, and perhaps more effective. So, so is the way to understand it, uh, um, well, is, is, uh, so OCD, uh, perhaps an overactive brain, uh, and so with lasers and, and thermal effects, you are you are sort of disconnecting some circuits. Is that the way to understand it? Yeah. So you know the the orbital frontal cortex, for instance, can exert its influence on the rest of you know brain activity in, in a variety through a variety of different pathways. And what we're doing is using you know disconnecting one of those pathways in order to lessen its influence. And you know it's 
you know, it's remarkable in that, you know, we, we often think about, um, you know, procedures like this, you know, in the context of, you know, frontal lobotomies, you know, which were, you know, uh, a very controversial procedure back when we didn't have any good medications or good treatments for psychiatric disease. Yeah. And those procedures were very dangerous and very debilitating. Um, you know, patients' lives were, you know, changed, you know, quite dramatically and, and not infrequently for the worse. And so, you know, what this is, you know, this kind of psychiatric neurosurgical procedure is, is quite different from those old procedures. You know, it's much, much more targeted. It's really based on a better understanding of the underlying science. It's performed, you know, in order to perform these procedures, you know, I don't make the decision myself whether a patient should get this procedure. We have a committee yeah. and that committee includes, you know, uh, you know, psychiatrists, obviously, neurologists, ethicists, you know, neuropsychologists. And so it's it's really kind of a group decision for the most extreme cases. And, you know, the other perspective I would have on this sort of procedure is that, you know, in epilepsy, if we could identify a part of the brain that's causing epilepsy and I were to put a laser in and, you know, zap that area and take, you know, get, you know, sort of take take care of that area so it's not producing seizures anymore, you know, nobody bat, bats an eyelash, right? I mean, that's pretty right. standard. Yeah. And I think we have to think about psychiatric disease in the same way. You know, it's, you know, it's a, it's a circuit in the brain that's that's active in a way that's maladaptive, that's preventing this person from, you know, getting on with their life in the way that they would like to. Hmm. And it's a brain-based disease that we can, we have a brain-based intervention to help. And I think that, you know, there's this, you know, negative connotation for psychiatric neurosurgery, you know, that's related to it's it's kind of, a, you know, unseemly past. Something so. Yeah, and I would imagine we are talking about an exceptionally small area, right? Uh, that's right, yeah. There's going to be... Yeah. So it's fairly small, you know, you know, the, the target region is, you know, under, you know, you know, just a few millimeters in size, really. Right, right. And I mean, it's, it's fascinating that we can pinpoint, uh, you know, that the affected area with, with, uh, with, with a lot of um, a lot of technology now. Um, but uh, has has there been any sort of um, Un, unintended uh, consequences of something like that uh, in, in any other function? So that's a good question. And, and we, we've been studying this because to a first approximation, you know, most of these patients who get this procedure don't report any cognitive problems or any, you know, real changes in their emotional state that, you know, they really just seem to have a benefit in their ability to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, function, you know, um, with reduced, you know, symptoms of their disease. Yeah. And, but, you know, but really we would expect that there's got to be something subtle that's changed, you know, and that could be for better or worse, just like in, you know, in, in some cases of epilepsy, for instance, if you're, you know, you, um, you know, use a laser to ablate the hippocampus that's causing the seizures, sometimes memory improves because what you've done is you've taken a faulty piece of the circuit out of, you know, out of the way and the intact parts can work be function better. So, but we would expect that there's some kind of change, you know, in their cognition or in, in the way that they solve problems or, you know, um, you know, something should be different other than just simply their disease, just right. because of the way the brain works. And so we're looking carefully at those things, but fortunately we haven't seen, you know, any significant evidence of, you know, cognitive decline or anything like that after a procedure like this. Yeah, yeah. So, so in conclusion, while you have done a lot of work in this area, um, uh, you know, chemical intervention of the brain has been uh, suboptimal, to say the least. You have to first get in there, uh, and it's more of a hammer uh, than than a precise um, 
technology. So it seems like there are a lot of opportunities here. If you look forward five years, uh, what are the areas that you are most excited about where we could actually make uh, significant improvements? Yeah, I'm looking forward to having, you know, more capable devices that are able to process neural information. You know, um, for instance, the processing that we did in that in that paper, you know, using machine learning, no current implantable device in humans has the capability to perform those analyses online. Yeah. And so, you know, it would be ideal to have systems that can, you know, analyze brain activity at a higher level and respond to that activity in very precise ways that, you know, very precisely treat symptoms, not just by putting the stimulator or whatever it is in the right circuit, but, but actually in a, you know, in a way that's time locked to the appearance or severity of symptoms. And so I think that there's a, there's a lot of possibility there. And in addition, I think that we might be able to harness brain plasticity in that way to really help the brain kind of unlearn bad patterns of activity, not just sort of treat them, you know, in the moment. Right. So something like PTSD. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For something like that, or even even in Parkinson's disease, I think there's a room for, you know, applying brain plasticity to to generate better movements. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this is exciting research. Uh, Thanks so much for spending time with me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, good luck. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.